Father, as your word has declared to us in its holy pages that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, furthermore, your word declares to us that the just, the righteous shall live by faith. We thank you that by the Spirit's indwelling and through the use of his holy word and through the means that he deploys to draw unto himself a people redeemed and ransomed unto the praise of the great name of Jesus Christ, our spiritual eyes are open to behold the true realities behind this life, behind the future, behind the only way, the truth, and means of salvation, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace through the proclamation of your holy word this day to behold the truths, Lord, that are forever established by your decree, that are eternal and true and will continue to shape every event in history unto the praise of your great name. When in the future you will ransom and redeem for yourself, not just a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, but along with them a new heavens and new earth, a new habitation for those who will then give you glory with sins atoned for fully and finally upon the shed blood of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with lips fitted with new voices, joining together in perfect unity the song of worship unto the Lamb that was slain, and their clothing resplendent with the purity of Jesus Christ's own righteousness that covers us forever and ever unto your glory. We look forward to this day, Lord, and I pray that the eyes of our faith would be further enlightened, that they would be trained to behold, and that our hearts would ring with appreciation at the truth that you have obtained for us such great riches in Christ. As we look now to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive. We pray that you would use this means, Lord Jesus, to proclaim to us things that will establish our faith and secure us and equip us to proclaim your name in a world that so despises you and all that you might use this proclamation to draw unto yourself from the death of sin, more saints who will worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this day. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. This morning we turn to the first book of the Bible again, Genesis. Turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Genesis 1, verses 3 through 11. As we begin to consider in our series, in the opening words of God's holy scripture, the first events of this universe when God spoke light and all that followed of this world into being. Powerful words, powerful foundations for our understanding of God, his works and his ways, the world, the environment he has created, and his means of grace even for his people. This morning, the title of our message is By Design. The point being that everything in Scripture, and especially as we consider the creation narrative, is by design. There is a particular purpose in mind as God unveils His works in this early uh, evidence of His creative glory. The aim of this morning's message, the purpose, is hopefully by the Spirit's use of the proclamation of His Word through this means today to inspire a worshipful recognition of the beauty of God in his creation. May the words of Genesis 1, 3 through 11, inspire in us a worshipful response, a worshipful recognition of the beauty of God as we see him in his creative power and as we see him through his creation. Would you stand with me this morning out of reverence for God's holy word? 
with your Bible open to Genesis 1, and listen as the word is proclaimed to us in our hearing, verses 3 through 11. Here we have the holy word of the Lord. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today's worship text was from Psalm 148. Turn there briefly with me, if you would. I think it is a great cross-reference, an important parallel text to consider alongside Genesis, as so many different passages, texts within the Scriptures are as well. But I have chosen this one to highlight this morning because I think it communicates to us the proper response to what we have just beheld in the beginning of the Bible's account of creation. In Psalm 148, it opens with these words, praise the Lord. It's a call to worship. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Everyone gather for this great worship service on account of the majesty of the Lord revealed is the heart, the context of Psalm 148. And where is that majesty chiefly revealed in Psalm 148, the example there cited? In his creative power, in his majesty revealed through his whole earth, and in his salvation. Psalm 148, 14, the closing verse reads, he has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near him, praise the Lord. Praise him, praise him. The repeated call, the incessant refrain. And may I suggest that creation itself outside these walls and the account of creation from Genesis 1 calls to us with each word, with each phrase, with each revelation, with each glorious display of God's genius. Praise me. Praise me. The Lord calls us from his his evidence of himself and his glory revealed in all of his world. Let's go through a lightning exegesis of Psalm 148 this morning. Today's worship text. Psalm 148 details the appropriate response upon realizing the glory of God revealed in the account of Genesis 1. And subsequently, 
his glory evident across all the universe, all the universe, which is a record of, it's a theater for his majestic works. Verse one that we have just read describes a fitting sanctuary for this expression of worship. What is a fitting place for this worship to be announced? Should it be quarantined to the obscure corners of a small building like ours, a humble place of worship in Cross Lake, Minnesota? No, the praises of the Lord should be uh, brought beyond these borders, beyond these walls, championed from the heights of the heavens indeed. It says in verse one, or in uh, the opening verses of Psalm 148, from the heavens and in the heights, the praises of the Lord ought to be echoed. Verses two and three identify those who ought to give him praise. Psalm 148.2, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. This record of the congregation, this list of those uh, beings, creatures, and even the uh, creation itself, which testifies to its glory, continues to list not just angels, hosts, but sun, moon, shining stars, highest heavens, waters above, mist, stormy wind, mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, livestock, creeping things, flying birds. The list is rounded out, calling for kings of the earth, all peoples, princes, all rulers of the earth, young men, maidens, old men, and children to praise the name of the Lord. Why, you might ask, why is God worthy of such accolades? Why does the psalmist summon for himself from the furthest corners of creation, this congregation to join their voices, both testifying to God's creative power in nature and voicing as much with their mouth and their mind equipped to do so as his creatures, sentient as you and I are. Why? The psalmist answers in verses five and six. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. This is why we praise the Lord according to the psalmist, because God commanded, he spoke, and all of the above were created. That is the host, the sun, the moon, the shining stars, the highest heavens, the waters above, mist, stormy wind, mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, livestock, created things, or creeping things, birds, all of the material universe. The Lord commanded, he spoke, and all of the above were created. He established them forever and ever by his authoritative, final, and omnipotent decree. He spoke, and there was light. He spoke, and there was heavens. He spoke, and there was earth. He spoke, and there was you and I. More reasons for this worship service are offered in the closing verses, 13 and 14. Yahweh's name alone is to be exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn. That is a means of strength and salvation for his people. And his saints who flourish near him, what is their chief end? What is their chief call? Yes, indeed, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. So all of this raises a question. What passage of scripture might have inspired this exuberant psalm, nearly breathless with overflowing accolades for the Lord of Lords? Our text today would certainly be a candidate, Genesis 1, 3 through 11, and of course, the context of the events of creation. So let us look closely at Genesis 1 in hopes that we may behold the glories of God that so moved the psalmist to utter these glorious words of praise. Let me ask you this question. 
the last time you read Genesis, when you considered the words that we open with today, did you have a response that was similar to Psalm 148? Did you mix your praises in your mind and in your heart, in your words, your confession and your song with the fire, the hail, the snow, the mist, the stormy wind that fulfill his holy word? Did you mix your voice? Did you exalt him with the mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, and livestock that flourish to the praise of his great name? Did you assemble for yourself, young men, maidens, together with old men, children, kings of the earth, princes, and rulers, because a worship service is deserving of this great evidence of the Lord's majesty? Our heart ought to ring with those words as we recount his deeds in Genesis. So let us look at his created order more closely, shall we, this morning? Back in Genesis 1, as we consider our text today, let me propose a heading. The created order is evident in. The created order is evident in the following. First of all, the universe described in Genesis 1. And then let me add the universe that we experience as we interact in this world around us. The created order, the order of God, the plan, the intention, his world, which was by design, is evident in the universe. And we'll see some ways that Genesis 1 proclaims this. Secondly, the created order is evident in the literary structure of Genesis 1. The way that the account is structured, the way that the words are ordered, the way that the account of the six days of creation are given to us in the seventh day of God's rest gives to us an evidence of God's created order. And thirdly, we'll look at a couple other places in Scripture, parallels, contrasting parallels to Genesis 1. Also, the God's create or also evidence God's created order. That's the basic framework for our message today. Let us consider point one. The created order is evident in the universe described in Genesis 1. Let us notice again these words. In the beginning, Genesis 1:1, God created the heavens and the earth. We've remarked in a prior message that when the Bible speaks in this way, when it uses the term heavens and earth, it's a catch-all term. It refers to all of the created realm, heavens and earth, that is the entire universe, all that can be studied, all that can be seen, all that is visible to the telescope as far as we can send it into the furthest reaches of space. This is the heavens and the earth. And these were created by the Lord in the beginning. Verse 2, the earth, our scriptures record for us, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here we've remarked, we see the agent of change. We see a supernatural power, that which is outside and distinct from the universe, acting upon this material, this matter, and this space. This agent of change, this active element, this supernatural force is described not in an impersonal way, but in a personal way. As the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God himself hovering, as it were, the way a bird would do over its chicks, nourishing them, drawing forth almost, or so to speak, the life from within the egg, waiting for that moment when the shell bursts and the chicks come forth and evidence the power of creation, of regeneration, or of generation, as it were. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in this way. There is a suspense building. There is a sense of power 
contained in these words. And this seed form is about to spring forth into glorious light. And the first rays of this power of God are seen in the next verse, verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. How do these words we've just considered evidence the order of the Lord, his created order, the nature and character of our God, whose will and intent is expressed perfectly, completely, succinctly, and with purpose, with an end whereby he has purposed all things to give praise and glory to his name. Well, we see this in the nature of the very universe itself. The creation all around us and the evidence or and the account of creation's origins that we have just read show us that God is orderly, purposeful, and powerful in the way that the universe itself is structured. Notice there are four elements that often recur in science textbooks that are all accounted for in these first couple of verses in Genesis. Those elements are as follows. Matter, space, energy, and time. Those terms may be familiar to you. They're often referred to in the account that scientists give for what are the necessary foundational elements. You at least have to have, to have this much before there can be such a thing as a universe, science says. We have to have a certain number of things in perfect harmony with one another. These things have been described in the past as matter, space, energy, and time. Notice, in the genius of the Lord and his inscrutable wisdom, all four of these are accounted for in the very beginning of the Bible itself. The scriptures say, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Here we have matter and space, the heavens, the expanse, or the firmament, the reaches, the realm in which the universe is situated is accounted for in this biblical description of the heavens. Also the earth, the material, the matter, the stuff of life, the atomic molecular structure of all that is accounted for in the universe we see comes from the sovereign hand of our God. It owes its existence to the power of God who in the beginning created all that exists. Matter and space owe their existence to the God of all creation. Thirdly, energy. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and in this picture, as we've mentioned, we see this infusion of creative power and force. And this evidence of the supernatural energy, if you will, of God is about to burst forth in a reaction. And God said, let there be light. And upon his spoken word, there was light. Energy, if you will, in its nascent form, burst into existence upon the proclamation of our God. The molecular structure of our universe began to interact following permanent laws that God established, laws of the universe that cannot be broken by anyone apart from him that will order, construct, and cause electrons to orbit around, if I remember my science correctly, the nucleus of the atom, heavenly bodies to orbit around according to the laws of gravity, larger bodies in the center. We think of our solar system. 
the circular motion which holds in this fixed point, as it were, relatively speaking, whole galaxies across the landscape of the known universe, all of these things are following the commandments that were issued from the very beginning of the God of space, matter, energy, and time, who said by his authoritative decree, let there be light. And there was light. Finally, time. God saw that the light was good, and what did he do? He ordered the light, did he not? He separated the light from the darkness. He created categories that now would mark time, day and night, uh, changing of seasons. And as the progress of creation continued, eventually lights to rule the day and lights to rule the night and a well-regulated, perfectly tuned order of things that even scientists, unbelieving ones now, are forced to admit in terms of the quote-unquote fine-tuning of the universe. I have heard often say, evidential apologists who try to point to the unbelieving world, particularly the scientific community, and say, look at all this evidence for the Lord and His glory. I've heard them often say their most powerful argument in that category of convincing or persuasion is the, quote, fine-tuning of the universe. How do we account for the multiplicity of system, systems, the infinite number of absolute finely-tuned details that must be in proper calibration with one another in order to sustain space, time, energy, matter, life as we know it? Brothers and sisters, we have the answer. We account for this because in, this, in these words in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, the creator of heaven and earth, created these things, the universe, and sus- continues to sustain them by the laws that he imposed, that he dictated to this world and everything beyond in the material cosmos by his authoritative decree. The evidence of God's order is further seen in his establishment of night or, and day, time itself, and even the order and structure of the creation week. And to this day, in spite of our great apostasy in the West, we still affirm a seven-day week, do we not? To to what do we owe this structure whereby we order our lives? This, the first day of the week, we celebrate the Lord's resurrection and even all of American society still structures itself and revolves around a seven-day week. The origin of this kind of structure that we yet maintain even in our relative rebellion as a society, broadly speaking today, goes all the way back to the God of order, to the God of matter, space, energy, and time, who in the beginning separated the light from the darkness, called the light good, and established the terms, the conditions, the order, the structure, the regularity, the fine-tuning of the universe in his decree, let there be day, let there be night, as it were, let there be light, and ordering it so. Thus, matter, energy, space, time, all are accounted for in Genesis 1. The universe itself testifies to the order of our Lord. The created order is evident in these things. Notice, by contrast, what wicked man wants to say accounts for the universe as we know it. You've heard of the Big Bang Theory. In the beginning, according to this world, in their apostasy, in their rebellion, and they're exchanging the glory of God for that which is created, they say, often, in scientific realms and so forth, quote-unquote science, in the beginning, there was a huge explosion, and now everything we have is all around us. 
Do you notice that in this idolatry, the scientist is wont to ascribe all the order and the fine-tuning that we see around us to one chaotic explosion? In the beginning, there was chaos, and the chaos burst forth spontaneously into order? I don't think so. Will this worldview and this accounting carry any weight or any merit, even in its uh, logical progression? No, its premise is askew. It's a rebellious notion. The primary motivation, I suggest that we hold it this day, is that we don't have to bow before the obvious source, designer, and sustainer behind this entire universe. universe. Order comes from order. Design comes from a designer. A perfectly fine-tuned, highly calibrated, unfathomably so universe owes its creation to the one who set it in motion and sustains it by his glorious by the glorious word of his power. And no one is, will stand before the Lord one day with any excuse because evidence to this effect is all around us, not to mention his holy word. In the universe described in Genesis 1 and all around us, we see testimony of the Lord's created order. <clears throat> Have you ever asked yourself <clears throat> how there was light and why there was light before the sun and the moon were created. In Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, this is interesting in part. It's intriguing, and we ask ourselves why the creation week is structured as such, because in verse 14, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. With the testimony of greater scripture, I think there are two reasons, perhaps, why light was created before the sun and before the moon. Before the natural sources of light existed, there was light, according to the creation account of scripture. What accounts for this uh, observation? Well, let us compare in broader scripture the manifest power and presence of the Lord, even utilizing light itself through the course of redemptive history. Do you remember the force or the manifestation of the Lord that guided the children of Israel through the wilderness? Was it not the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? And we recognize in these manifestations that there was a light source from God himself, a light source that was not contingent, as it were, on a secondary means. It wasn't the sun that led the Egyptians or the Israelites out of the clutches of Egypt. It was God manifesting himself in a pillar of fire. And therefore, it would be paganism indeed to worship something like the sun and the moon. Think about the burning bush, God revealing himself to Moses. There was something unique about this experience when we look at it more closely. We've mentioned this in the past. Past One detail in the text is the fact that the bush was not consumed. This fire rested upon the bush, but it was not dependent on the bush as its fuel source. A fire with no fuel, a light with no uh, source in nature. What could account for this image, this picture? God himself. Uh, Young people, you have learned recently among the attributes of God that he is known exclusively and only in all the created realm for his independence. That is, God needs no other. God is in and of himself complete, fully functional, fully operational, God is the technical philosophical term ase, aseity. It is the self-contained power 
God has everything in and of himself that makes him who he is. When God reveals himself and his way and his means through creation itself, he sometimes demonstrates this attribute in a fire that has no secondary source. A bush is not consumed because God is a fire that needs no kindling. A fire leads the people out of their bondage in Egypt with no source because the light of God comes from himself, as it were, and his created power is owed to his word, his intent, and him alone. So in, this element, in these elemental foundations of creation itself, we see that the account of Genesis 1 prevents us from pointing to the sun as the source of our life and pointing to the moon as the object worthy of our worship. Pagans of old have made this mistake, but you would not make this mistake if you read the word of God with spirit-inspired comprehension. You would know that before the sun and moon existed, there was light. And before light existed, there was God. And by his sovereign power alone, we owe our life and our light. Now, materially, that's a theological reason, perhaps why light is listed first, even before the sun and the moon. But materially, there is perhaps some significance as well. That is to say, that light perceiving the heavenly bodies speaks to the elemental physics behind the universe. God spoke, that is to say, and conditions necessary for matter and energy were immediately present. So God was responsible in his creative work for the necessary conditions for all of the laws of the universe, most of which we cannot explain or understand, most of which we trip over and stub our toe upon and begrudgingly admit that they are in fact an axiom as we study science itself. And so we see in this record some profound significance in the fact that God spoke and there was light and that light was good. And that light was there because God's word spoke it into being and therefore we do not ascribe anything to secondary sources ultimately, but ultimately only to God and his creative power. Thirdly, in God's created order evidenced in the universe, we find laws of nature and the coherence of history. The preconditions for an intelligible world are traced back to the word, to the decree of God in Genesis 1. Because creation and the universe are orderly, because they are predictable, because they follow God's word from, his very, from the very beginning, they are therefore understandable, comprehensible, and knowable to us. I heard a one apologist put it this way. He said, I'll mark this down in your notes or make a mental note. These are powerful points. He said that in order for any scientific endeavor to proceed, it moves forward on three assumptions. Number one, there is order in the universe. If there is no order in the universe, there is nothing that you can discover. There is nothing, there's no reason that one thing would lead to another. There's no cause and effect relationship. There is no predictability. There is no repetition. There is no, uh, if there is no order, there is nothing to discover. So first, all science proceeds in assuming that the universe is orderly. Secondly, all science proceeds on the assumption that we are the types of beings that can discover this order. 
Every scientist assumes he's intelligent enough to recognize order when he sees it. Every scientist assumes that he has the ability tools at his disposal, his mental comprehension, and whatever he assembles for himself in the laboratory to be able to ascertain certain bits, knowledge, and wisdom as he interacts with God's world. Why is this? It is because further in the creation week, we see that we are made in the image of God. Have you ever seen a laboratory for a bunch of cows where they're carefully discovering mysteries of the furthest reaches of the universe? Well, let's take, you know, scientists love to champion the relative intelligence of dolphins and apes. Have you ever seen any secret laboratories under the ocean where apes are, uh, or where dolphins in this case, have, uh, you know, pencils behind their ear? I guess they don't have ears, but, you know, clipboards and their flippers, and they're calculating and doing careful, you know, discovery, discoveries on the nature of things beyond the realm of their next meal, their next fish? No, they're chasing a mate, and they're eating smaller uh, sea creatures. This is what dolphins do, right? In the same way, chimps in spite of, you know, the ambidex, whatever ability, uh, posable thumbs and everything else, no monkey uses that to record his highly advanced, you know, technological algorithms and equations that try to explain the mass energy concepts that can account for the structure and order in our universe. There is no rel theory of relativity that was discovered when we found a group of chimps out in a rainforest somewhere. Why is this the case? It's because human beings alone, created in the image of God, have the capacity to understand order when we see it. And the third thing is that there is value in this discovery. So let me list them again. Number one, there's order in the universe. Number two, you and I are the types of beings that can, uh, that can recognize this order. And thirdly, there is value in that discovery. If you think about it, those three conditions are built upon the Christian worldview alone. You can't account for those three any other way than Genesis 1. Because creation is as it is, and because God has decreed things are the way they are, because the God of order created an orderly universe, science itself is possible. And when we think about this, how blasphemous, how blasphemous is it then to use that very means that only God is the foundation for to deny him? This is what fools do. Fools say in their heart, there is no God. Foolish scientists say, by my powers of discovery, I've proved that there isn't a God who is necessary for my powers of discovery. Do you notice the self-defeating premise? Oh, I've learned by my powers of discovery there is no God who could be the only answer for my powers of discovery. Cuts off the branch upon which he stands. No. So we go back to scripture, we see that the coherence of history, the coherence of nature, the order in the universe is all owed to the fact that it has a sovereign, an intelligence beyond our comprehension, a powerful and purpose-oriented being, God himself, the eternal Yahweh, the uncreated one, who is there, the alpha and the omega, the forever sustaining power behind the universe, who by his word and by his decree alone is responsible for all that we see around us. The created order is evidence in the universe, evident in the universe described in Genesis 1. Second point, more briefly this morning, the created order is evident in the literary structure of Genesis. We'll just touch upon this briefly because in coming weeks, we will discuss and we'll look a little more closely. I've recognized a pattern in studying with some commentary in the structure of the six days of creation, and this is fascinating. Um, make, you can make a little list in your notes. Number one, light. So light was created on the first day. Second day, air and water. Third day, dry land and plants. 
And then those, those three you could put in a line. Day one, light. Day two, air and water. Day three, dry land and plants. Think of those as the environment or the conditions necessary, the realm, their habitats, if you will. And then notice in these environments, these three different um, realms of the created order, how they are filled with its inhabitants in the next three days of creation. Number four, lights. The fourth day, lights were created. Lights that inhabit, if you will, the habitat or the environment of light or the heavens, or generally speaking, this area, this realm above the earth. Um, Number five, fowl and fish. So those are what fill, populate air and water. And number six, animals and man, which primarily, of course, inhabit. These are the creatures that crawl and so forth. They primarily inhabit dry land and feed upon plants. So there's a purpose, there's an order in the structure. Um, Commentators have noted two triads, that is two groups of three. And in these two groups of three, we see that creation itself, even in the structure of the literature here, was not arbitrary, but testifies to an orderly God who creates a place as a habitation and then fills it with his glory. The Lord created the heavens and the earth, and then he filled them with the heavenly bodies that give him glory and testify to his power. The Lord created the habitation. He created the place, the air and the water, the firmament above and the great seas and so forth. And then he filled them with creatures to give him glory. The birds that fly and the fish that swim through these realms. The Lord established by his authoritative word, the dry lands and the plants to spring forth. And in this environment, in this habitat, he filled out the ecosystem with plant, with, of plants and dry land with animals and with man. And so we see a purpose, a direction, a telos that is a design that a creator, God, has in mind to reveal his order to us even through the account of his creation. We see this pattern of realm or place and then habitation for his glory Repeated all through scripture, do we not? You yourself, if you are a believer in this room, are a temple for the Holy Spirit. God has created a realm in his new creation. When you were born again, he sanctified you as a temple for his Holy Spirit. That is, by his creative work, he created a realm, a place, a habitat suitable for the glorious indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Place and inhabitant. Uh, giving glory to his name. We see this in the picture of temple and the instructions of the tabernacle create this beautiful area environment suitable for the presence of the Lord. And when everything was accomplished according to his word, the spirit of God himself uh, was enthroned upon the cherubim, rested with his people and inhabited the place, the the place prepared for his dwelling. The new heavens and new earth are a place that will be recreated as a realm. They will be the redeemed place for God to manifest himself with his redeemed creatures. You and I will join him in this place that we read of in God's future plans for his world. Now, this pattern of habitation and indwelling is all through scriptures, and it goes all the way back to Genesis 1. These are foundational truths 
about God's glorious order. Even in the literary structure of Genesis 1, we see these patterns laid out and they will be repeated through scripture and evident throughout all history. This unfolding is a glorious one. There is a direction, there's an end, there's a greater and increasing, escalating revelation and knowledge of the glory of the Lord that is presumed in this trajectory and this direction. You have sometimes heard it said of the pagans that history merely repeats itself. This is based on the assumption that there is no intelligent being guiding, directing by his sovereign hand of providence the direction of all things and all events toward a particular goal. The doctrine of providence, as we understand it in Scripture, militates, it refutes this notion of fatalistic, cyclical direction of history. History itself is by design. The title of our message today, events are progressing forward unto God's revelation. As we've read and we'll uh, cover again in our sermon later today, Habakkuk 2, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the purpose, the goal, the telos, the end, the fulfillment, the unfolding, the glorious revelation to which all events and all creation is moving. And there are a lot of things that God has purpose in between point A and point B, but you and I are living in that unfolding. And you and I witness that unfolding all through scripture. And here we witness its beginning. The coherence of history, the structure of redemption, the way that all things move forward according to God's decree goes all the way back to an orderly God who created an orderly structure for an orderly universe by the ordering power of his holy word. Number three this morning, the created order is evident, not only in the universe described in Genesis 1, not only in the literary structure of the six days of creation, but finally, this morning, let us note in contrasting parallels to Genesis 1. Notice in other passages of Scripture that even God's judgments assume the categories of creation. Let's consider plagues and pestilence as an example in Exodus 7 through 12. Now, we may not appreciate in our rebellion the orderly God when His inscrutable wisdom, His unsearchable beauties of His holy character, we owe our very existence. We may not appreciate that. Sometimes God's correction and oftentimes His judgment for this obtuse and rebellious state of mind and soul in man Sometimes this receives the judgments of God in the form of him withholding some of his order or restraining his hand that sovereignly directs all things for a moment and introduces a level of frightening circumstance that when the Holy Spirit uses, awakens us to the reality that we owe our next breath, all of our existence to the Lord of glory. And if he were to remove it for a moment, you and I are doomed. We see this in the plagues and pestilence that fell upon Egypt in Exodus 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made uh, you like God to Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? So God has delegated an agency to Moses in order to teach Pharaoh to bring his word and his wonders to Pharaoh. So God, the voice of God is coming through Moses as his agent or representative, and he's bringing a message of judgment to this man. I wonder what God will tell Pharaoh. Well, first of all, he will tell him that you better respect the separation of the land from the waters. 
You better respect the fact that God has ordained the H2O molecular structure of water itself because without it, it could be something as arbitrary as blood if God removed his restraining hand for a moment. When God begins to introduce a degree of disorder to creation, we see it unfolding in these plagues. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand at the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am God. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. And of course, this happened. Now, the power of God was evident in the touch of that rod, which was imbued by the power of the Holy Ghost, as it were, changing the water to be something different than God had ordained it to be. God suspended his rules for the universe in this miracle to demonstrate that he is God of water. Water is not God. The Egyptians likely worshiped the Nile. This river was not God. It was evidence of the God who had the power to create it, ordain it, and sustain it in the first place. And to this God, Pharaoh must bow or else, or else what? Or else his streams of life-giving force through his land will be turned into the symbol of death. Water, life-giving water will be turned into the fluid of death, as it were. Blood runs through the land. Now, the assault of creation, where creation turns against Pharaoh and Egypt in judgment, continues. You remember, frogs, gnats, flies, Egyptian livestock die. Even the heavens turn against them. There's hail. Their body systems rebel. Boils break out. There's locusts that descend upon the crops. That which they have cultivated and grown uh, becomes victim to this judgment. Finally, darkness settles over the land. If you do not respect the fact that God separated the light from the darkness, perhaps you will appreciate it more when God removes his hand of separation for a moment and darkness conquers day because God shows you that without his power to maintain the order of the universe, even day and night, you lose your power to even see and all of your crops die and the heavens rain judgment in the form of hail. Your body breaks out with sores and the smallest of the crawling creatures have dominion over you. You see, Adam was created to take dominion over all creatures, great and small. But when these terms were changed and God used his creation as an instrument of judgment, suddenly Pharaoh got to see the horror of that order being reversed. Instead of man having dominion over all creatures for a moment during these plagues and pestilence, the smallest of creatures, gnats, locusts, frogs, lice, and so forth, took dominion over man. And so we see in this contrasting parallel to Genesis 1, that if we do not respect the God who orders creation, there are severe consequences. If we do not respect the God who has ordered creation, we will often become a victim of creation itself as the mountains and the hills and fire and sword and pestilence and earthquake, the rocks crying out as it were, following the instructions of their maker, make war against us. God forbid, let us worship the Lord who is sovereign over all these things. Secondly, covenant sanctions. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28, contrasting parallels to Genesis. If the people are not faithful to the covenant, 
That is, if they do not recognize that the Lord himself, from the very first words that Moses wrote in Genesis 1, creates, ordains, and sustains all things, and therefore is worthy of that Psalm 148 kind of worship, consequences will come upon them. And that which they appreciate, as it gives them food and so forth in the created order, will again make war against them. What will happen? It says, you shall write, or it says the curses of Mount Ebal in Deuteronomy 28, verse 7, or verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. That's the uh, portion of blessing. Uh, verse 15 records the penalty for disobedience. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Listen, cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and your young flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. Notice verse 20. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do. And notice the means, the instruments of God's confusion, frustration, and cursing. Instead of the earth bringing forth seed to multiply, instead of man being fruitful and multiplying, the way in God's created order, the blessing was intended. Now these things, due to their disobedience, become curses. And God destroys the crops of their field. That which they attempt to gather to sustain themselves becomes poison on their tongue. The fruit of the womb and the fruit of the ground no longer yield their increase. God reserves the right in his sovereignty to use his very created order as an instrument of judgment, of correction, of covenant sanction against his people. But on the other hand, there are blessings that attend the righteous, and Deuteronomy 28 opens with these. It says, all these blessings shall come upon you, verse 2, and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, increase of your herds, and your young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. So you see again, evidence of God's created order, even in these contrasting parallels to Genesis. Let us worship the Lord. Let us acknowledge him. Let us not be like apostate Israel. Let us not be like hard-hearted Pharaoh. Let us recognize the Genesis account is indeed the foundation and basis whereby we enjoy all of God's provision, all of his providence by way of food even on our table tonight. So the next time you pray over your meal, you remember the source, the authority, the means, the power, the creative genius behind those beans and rice or fajitas, though it's one of my favorites. So anyways, these are examples in the scriptures of how foundational and important creation is and consequently, the consequences of denying the same. Now this pattern is seen all through the scriptures, even through Revelation. We don't have time to touch on these this morning, but on your own time in Revelation 6 through 8, all the way through 11, it's interesting. There are seals that are being opened and each seal is associated with a revelation of God in the form of symbolic judgment. A trumpet's the same. These trumpets, the last seal is in fact uh, unfolds in, in trumpet blasts. And up until the seventh trumpet blast, each one of those interventions of the Lord, uh, just about all of them 
uh, represent uh, making war against God's enemies using creation itself. God employs creation as an instrument of his judgments all through history from Genesis to Revelation. And so we acknowledge these things through the course of Scripture, that God who reserves the right to order all things because he has ordered them in the first place also is powerfully made known, not just in the way that he sustains this universe according to his laws, but also in the fact that he uses these very things as judgment at times to reveal the harsh consequences of denying the same. Finally this morning, the language of Genesis is used throughout the language of redemption. One of those parallels in Genesis 1 is the fact that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The created order evident when God made the heavens and the earth is something you as a believer in this room can relate to. Because as we've mentioned before, there was a time in your soul when on the inside you were darkness without form and void. And there was nothing uh, inside of you that could uh, manifest the glory of the Lord in the way that would reflect back to him the beauty of his creation. Why? Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This was your state, spiritually speaking, before God recreated you. But the book of Genesis came alive in a spiritual way when you were born again. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep in your own heart and breathed regeneration life into you, and you became born again. A new creation. A Genesis 1-1 moment spiritually happened in your heart when God breathed life by His agent of power and change, His Holy Spirit. And just as in Genesis 1, the Spirit and the Word were there, the primary instruments of God's fundamental change to call you out of darkness into His marvelous light and to resurrect you from spiritual death unto eternal life. And so we see from the created order, even to our salvation, that these terms of creation flow all the way through God's revelation. In Jesus Christ, we ourselves are transformed by the Spirit and the Word. We are therefore in Him a new creation, born again. We are children according to the second Adam. We are anticipating a bodily resurrection, and we look forward to partaking of the tree of life in glory. And brothers and sisters in Christ, in this room, there is destined for us a new heavens and a new earth, in which we will have the privilege of inhabiting when God finally and fully manifests his creating, sustaining, and glorifying power to make for himself a realm and a people that will perfectly manifest his praise and his glory, as Psalm 148 has declared, that he so deserves. And so from creation, from the account of Genesis to the book of Revelation, we look forward to these things revealed in all of Scripture. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the evidence of your glories all through the pages of Scripture. We pray that you would use Genesis 1 to inspire in us a worshipful recognition of the beauty of your beauty in your creation. Father, at the next opportunity, may we join our voices and our praises to ascribe to you the glory you so deserve. May we take that opportunity to do exactly that. Perhaps even at the combined service we have later this afternoon. Let us mix our voices with others of your redeemed that gather in the assembly of the beloved to lift up the praises that you deserve 
because this world is held together by the word of your power. And the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ has been manifest to us in the incarnate word made flesh, calling us out from spiritual death unto newness of life, and we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We of all people, Lord, ought to give you glory. Of all creatures, Lord, are best equipped to magnify your name on account of your creative and redemptive power. We thank you for the great privilege of witnessing these things and joining the chorus of all creation, ascribing glory to your name for what you have done. Help us to this end, Lord Jesus, in all that we might grow from this message to better reflect your glories. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.